0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Safeguarding the gospel in a local church like ours is somewhat like guarding the main gate of an ancient city. So there you are as the guard at the gate, You have the lever, you are the one who pulls the gate up, you are the one who closes it shut, and you have the responsibility, the lives of all the people in the city behind you to keep out danger and to allow in friends. Requires a lot of wisdom because, again, to continue that picture, if there you were guarding the city, control of the gate in your hand... Most of the time, sunrise by sunrise, when you open the gate, in will come merchants and friends, visitors, travelers, those who are carrying the food and the necessities that your city needs. If you were to close the gate on them, you would stagnate or you would starve. The life and the vitality depends upon you keeping the gate open most of the time. But just like Joshua had sent those spies to sneak into Jericho, so it always was in the ancient world, spies of enemy nations and armies want to come into your city. And of course, they don't show up saying, hey, we're spies. They come up looking like merchants and visitors and travelers and friends. And it's your job to detect them. It's your job to be on the lookout, to try to see them slip up, to try to see if there's error here. And if you can't catch them, then at least to shut the gate so that they can't come in in order to save the lives of the people who are inside. Now you can see how that would be a rather delicate job. Life and death are on the line and you are trying to discern between those who you need to let into the city or you'll perish and those who you need to keep out of the city or you'll perish. Like I said, that task is not at all unlike what you and I are called to here in the local church. We are like gatekeepers in the house of God, letting in and not letting in. Jesus had said this, "'Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They want you to let them in, and they look like sheep, but they're not. They're spies.'" When Paul spoke with the elders, the leadership of the Ephesian church, he said this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So we are at the main gate and we are, and must be, Friendly, generous, open hearted toward all. Yes? Yes. And when people come in, we just check around the back to see if there's a wagging wolf tail because we've been warned that there are not most, but some who will come into the church disguised as a genuine believer, but will be a false teacher they will probably be thinking they're doing the will of God, but they come in secretly and will try to turn away a number from the truth of the gospel. The consequence is that every local church needs so much wisdom that it cannot be had apart from a direct work of the Holy Spirit. Because there are some, and you know this, some churches that end up leaning away from wisdom on one side and becoming gate-closing churches. These are the churches that are strong in discernment, and for that we do praise God. But the guy who's closing the gate is a little trigger happy, closes the gate all the time. Here come friendly merchants, closes the gate. Here come those bringing food, closes the gate. Now, you will keep your church safe that way if you just close off Everyone who smells like they may have in a former life associated with someone who might have known about false teaching. So you close the gate on everybody, you'll be safe. You don't associate with those who associate with anybody who's false in any way. You will end up having a certain degree of safety, but what happens is you stagnate as a local body. You end up unable to even look with an outside perspective at your own issues because you're not allowing any fresh air in. You've closed the gate too much. So that's a temptation. But of course, there is on the other side, the possibility of being a gate-opening church, especially in our day because culturally it just feels mean to say somebody's wrong. It feels even meaner to kick them out of your church. Churches can't kick people out. Churches must kick people out. But it doesn't feel nice, so there will always be some churches that, for the sake of appearing to be kind, will just keep the gate open all the time. They fire the guy who's supposed to close it. Anybody can come in with anything, but what ends up happening in those churches is even though it might feel better at first, Scripture speaks of false teaching like an infection, like gangrene, which starts small, but if you don't deal with it while it's small, it begins to spread, it becomes large, and you die. And that's what happens in a local church when the gate has no gatekeeper at all, and anyone is allowed in unopposed with any sort of gospel or teaching, the church will lose the gospel. If there's no sense of vigilance, if there's no sense of looking out, obeying the commands of Scripture to be alert, if none of that happens in a local church, the church cannot continue to maintain its hold on the gospel. So, we need a delicate wisdom as a local church to know when to close the gate and when to keep the gate open. And we simply can't have that kind of wisdom without the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit guides us first by the Scriptures He's inspired, and that's why as we continue our study through Galatians, He's brought us to a passage that is about this very thing. It's about how to handle those who are coming in with error, closing the gate. How to handle those who are coming in different than us, therefore maybe scary, but not holding a different gospel, keeping the gate open. How do you do that? Well, Paul is an example for us in our text today as we come to Galatians chapter 2. So let's look at this in Galatians 2 as the Spirit has inspired this for our benefit and I trust we'll open our eyes to understand it even as we read it. Beginning in the first verse. Then, after 14 years, this was when Paul had visited Jerusalem briefly and then had left far north. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul had presented the main argument of this entire letter back in the first chapter in verse 11. The gospel that was preached by me, he said, is not man's gospel. That's verse 11 of chapter 1, and everything that's followed from that verse up to now, and continuing here onward, everything has been Reasons for you to believe that, that Paul's gospel that he preached was not made up out of his own head. He didn't receive it from the leaders in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem apostles. He didn't receive it from them. He didn't get it from anybody. It was revealed to him by Christ himself. That's the gospel he proclaims. That's the gospel we have in Scripture. That's the gospel we, therefore, proclaim. And Paul has given us reasons to believe that that's true. You remember he talked about his own radical conversion, said, if my gospel's not from heaven, why am I of all people preaching it? Because I tried to destroy Christianity. But it, there was a supernatural intervention where Christ, on the way to Damascus, turned me around to now proclaim the faith I once tried to destroy. So that is an argument in favor of the fact that it's a real gospel from heaven, not man-made. <laughs> he also gave this argument you remember, I couldn't have gotten my gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem. Number one, I didn't even go to Jerusalem for three years after I came to Christ. I was out preaching Christ, preaching the gospel that I supposedly learned from Jerusalem three years before I ever went to Jerusalem. And then even when I went there, I was there two weeks. I talked to Peter, I talked to James real briefly, and then I left for fourteen years. (laughs) So don't tell me I'm a student of the apostles and my gospel's just derivative from theirs. Clearly my gospel came from heaven. So that's what he's been doing. Today he's continuing his argument, giving you reasons to believe his gospel's from heaven by saying, now let me tell you what finally, when I finally did go to Jerusalem for an extended period of time, let me tell you what happened. (laughs) It was not that I got my gospel from them, because at that point it had been 14 years of preaching the gospel, so I didn't get my gospel at that point. But when I went there, it was confirmed by the apostles, and the only people who didn't like my gospel were the false brothers secretly brought in. So as Paul's making his argument now in chapter 2, what he really gives us is a sort of guide through his own dealings for us in how we should deal with Believers who differ from us in emphasis, and sometimes in practice, but who hold our same gospel, and how we should deal with so-called believers who have a different gospel. You will find both types of people in the church, in our local church here, and every church you go to, you will find both true believers who differ on some things, and false brothers is what he calls them, false believers. And we have to have the wisdom to know how to interact, when to open, when to close the gate, how to deal with these things. And thankfully, that's what we have in our passage. So that's what we're going to look at in this passage, those two headings. First, we are going to consider here how we deal with true brothers who differ from us in some ways, but not in the essence of the gospel. Then we'll turn to those who are false brothers. So look at the true brothers first. How do we interact with other churches, other believers who come here differ in some ways but not in the gospel? Look at verses 1 through 3 again. Then after 14 years, and just as a side note, that could either mean 14 years after his conversion. Or 14 years after the three years he was in Arabia, bringing it up to 17 years. I don't know which one it is. You go read a commentary and try to figure it out. It won't change much what we're talking about here, but just so you know. Then after 14 years, the main point is it's a long time, okay? Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, and the them is the leadership in Jerusalem, apostles, not just the original 11, but also people like James, Jesus' half brother, who was a leader there, okay? So that's them. I sent before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, this might seem a bit redundant, but I want to make very clear to you that the them that he went and interacted with in Jerusalem, the leadership, they are true believers. We'll see that there are differences between Paul and them. We'll also see that they are not perfect people. Peter, who's one of the them, who seems influential and is among the leadership in Jerusalem, is going to get a sharp rebuke from Paul in a few verses. So we'll see that in a few weeks. These are not perfect people. Not perfect people. There are some differences in the emphasis of their ministry. We'll see that as well but they are true believers. Yes, they're true believers holding the same gospel that Paul has even if the emphasis differs to Gentiles, to Jews. Now, I take our passage here when he says he went up because of a revelation. That's one of the reasons we know they're true believers. God himself tells Paul, go up, set your gospel before them. He wouldn't do that if they were false believers. Now, Here, I take what's happening at the beginning of Galatians 2 to be the very same thing you find in Acts chapter 15. In that chapter, there's a famous Jerusalem council where you have James and Peter and the believers in Jerusalem with Paul and Barnabas having come down from Antioch in the north there, just like our text. They get together, they have a massive discussion. Because some Judaizers had gone up to Antioch saying, oh, you guys, you can't really be Christians unless you're circumcised. Keep the law of Moses, all of this. So, Paul and Barnabas come down to Jerusalem and there's a massive discussion among the leadership and the believers. We call it the Jerusalem Council. I take what's happening here in Galatians 2 to be the same as that. There's some difficulties with that putting Acts 15 and Galatians 2 together, so not everyone agrees with that. The biggest difficulty is this, that when you're reading the book of Acts in chapter 11, there is a time when Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem to bring relief. And in Galatians, Paul doesn't mention it. Galatians reads as if Paul's saying, listen, I went over to Jerusalem for two weeks. Remember that? That was the first time I went. Acts agrees. Great then I left up north. And then when you start chapter 2, he says, then after 14 years, I went again. And you read that as, he didn't go again for 14 years. And that's kind of important in the argument that he's making. But in Acts chapter 11, he goes one more time that's not mentioned here. So some people say, well, Paul wouldn't make an argument like that. He wouldn't leave that out. That's pretty important. And so maybe this is just the visit for relief in Acts 11 in Galatians 2. But when I look at Galatians 2, there's so much similar to Acts 15 and the Jerusalem council, it's hard for me to imagine it's just the relief that was brought in Acts 11. So although it might be difficult to grasp fully, I do think what's happening here is that Paul simply left out that visit to bring relief. It's very brief in Acts. It just, maybe one or two verses, he went down, brought relief, that's it. I don't think he stayed there a long time. He probably didn't have much interaction with the leadership, and so he just thinks, I'm not going to bring it up, you know? I only have so much ink here. I'm not going to bring that up. I'm going to leave that aside. I'm going to talk about my main visits to Jerusalem. So just so you know, I understand Galatians 2 to be pointing to Acts 15. Others think differently, and it's not going to change a ton, but that's how I'm understanding it. So, returning to our main point here, if I'm right in understanding that, it's interesting that Paul says he went up because of a revelation. Because in Acts 15, we are told that Paul is sent by the church. Here's Acts 15. Quote, After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with the Judaizers, they're fighting in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others including Titus, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders, and the next verse tells us it was the church in Antioch that appointed them. You say, wait a minute. Did Paul go up because of a revelation, or did he go up because the church at Antioch sent him? Maybe that's a contradiction. Not at all. Do you remember just a few chapters before in Acts when Paul and Barnabas, the very same two, were sent out on their first missionary journey? Who sent them, God by revelation or the church at Antioch? Both of them at the same time. (laughs) The Holy Spirit at that time spoke to the church while they were fasting, spoke to them, and told them, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for this task to which I'm calling them. And then we read, quote, after fasting and praying, they, the church, laid their hands on Paul Barnabas and sent them off. So in our passage too, the revelation that's referred to, he went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation was probably the Holy Spirit revealing this to the church at Antioch, saying send Paul and Barnabas up to Jerusalem to deal with this mess of Judaizers who've come here. Or even if it was a private revelation of Christ to Paul, which is possible, the church at Antioch at least confirmed it, said, yes, you guys go and deal with this. Verse 2, I went up because of a revelation. Now, the main point I want to make there is that that confirms for us the Jerusalem leadership were not false brothers, but were true brothers. They don't agree on everything, but they were true brothers. So much so that the Holy Spirit tells Paul and Barnabas, To go up there and set your gospel before them so you can work together on preaching the one gospel. So, they're true believers. They're also seen as true believers because of verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. That is the main point of contention with the Judaizers. That's why the Judaizers' gospel is a false gospel, because of that right there, because they would force Titus as a Greek to be circumcised, because their message was, if you don't get circumcised, become a Jew, keep the dietary law, keep the external regulations of the Old Testament law, you cannot be a genuine believer. You cannot be saved. That was their false gospel. It was a works salvation. And Paul spends his whole life counteracting that. Notice in verse 3 that whatever else is true about the leadership in Jerusalem, they clearly hold to the true gospel because they did not pressure Titus to be circumcised because they did not believe he needed to be in order to be saved. They believed in a salvation by faith and not by works. If you go read their conclusion of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, you'll see clearly that's the case. It might seem redundant for us to talk about them being true believers. Of course, the leadership in Jerusalem are true believers. But you'll see they had problems, (laughs) they had a lot of problems. Paul's going to have to rebuke Peter shortly because he starts to compromise even on things that relate to the gospel. He'll withdraw from eating with the Gentiles, kind of suggesting you do need to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul's going to rebuke him. These were not perfect Peter, perfect people. So we might be tempted to say, they're heretics. Peter's a heretic. He's compromising the gospel. Well, in a sense, he was compromising the gospel. We'll see that. And yet, Peter was a true believer. Peter was a true believer. The leadership in Jerusalem, they were true believers. What is more, we have to emphasize that they were genuine believers because they differed in their emphasis of ministry from Paul. And whenever you encounter someone who differs in their passions or their emphases or how they do ministry or their methodology, the first temptation is always to think they're bad, maybe not even believers, because they're not doing it the way I do it. (laughs) As a preview of next week, see verses 7 and 8. On the contrary, when they saw... That I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry over there to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine over here to the Gentiles. Different emphasis. Because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. It was a unique calling for him. And anytime you encounter people who differ like that in their emphasis, the feeling can be Paul could easily have gone there to Jerusalem and said, do you guys even care about God's plan in the world? you even care about the Gentiles? Am I the one out here preaching to the Gentiles? You guys are all holed up and comfy here in Jerusalem, and this is my job? Are you even Christians? (laughs) That's exactly what Paul does not do. Paul recognizes their differences. He's going to see quite clearly how imperfect they are, but they're true believers because they hold to and proclaim the true gospel. Now that we've established that they're true believers, we're ready to ask, how does Paul handle them? How does he interact with them? How does that help us to know how to interact with true believers we may differ with? I would sum up Paul's dealings with them in our passage like this. Paul leans toward them in his interactions with the believers, the leadership in Jerusalem. Look at the parentheses in verse 2. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, parentheses, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. Why privately? This is Paul. (laughs) Paul is known to be fiery, to strike people with blindness, to speak up, to say what he's thinking. You're not guessing what he's thinking. Paul could easily have come down in a fiery passion, showed up in the public portion of the Jerusalem council, because it seems there was a private meeting and then a public meeting, could have showed up in the public meeting and spoken his mind and said things like, why did you all send the no-good Judaizers up to Antioch? would have been a wrong assumption because they didn't send (laughs) them, But Paul didn't know that yet. Why'd you do that? So he could have thrown that out. He could have reproved them in public and said, why didn't you shut the gate fast enough? These Judaizers are coming up here tormenting us in Antioch. There should already be a letter out telling all these Gentiles that you didn't send them. If you didn't send them, why do I have to come down here and convince you to do it? (laughs) Paul could have done that. Because that is, in fact, what the Jerusalem Council, after much deliberation, decides to do. They do send a letter. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul instead really leans toward them despite their differences. That's the purpose of the parentheses. He went down there, and the first meeting he has is privately, 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 Not publicly, but privately with those who seemed influential. He's talking about Peter. He's talking about James, the leaders. Privately to them, I discussed with them how I think that the Judaizers are totally wrong. And this is the gospel I proclaim among the Gentiles. And it doesn't require circumcision or the Mosaic law and its externals. Why privately? The only reason that I can think is this if I can put it this way, to preserve their dignity. To preserve the dignity of the leadership. He doesn't come in and just start blasting. But he comes in private. He leans toward them. Because you know if you have conflict with someone and you wait until you're around everybody, you know, holiday meal, (laughs) you have conflict with somebody and they wait for the holiday meal to bring it up. Is it going to go well? It's not going to go well. And so for the sake of the person's dignity because you know it'll be heard better he begins privately with them it says hey let's talk about this he's leaning toward them not away from them notice his reason for meeting with them quote in order to make sure i was not running or had not run in vain you might think what he's saying is he had to go and confirm his gospel and make sure it was the real gospel. No, that is not what Paul is saying here. His point has been just the opposite, that he already has a true gospel. He doesn't need anyone to confirm it. It's from God. What he means when he says he wanted to confirm that he wasn't running in vain is he realized that for him to continue his ministry of planting churches around the world among the Gentiles He needed the Jerusalem church to be on board. The Jerusalem church was the center of influence in the early Christian community. Everybody was looking at that church. So the Judaizers came from that church, and that's why they got a hearing. So he knew he needed a unity with that church in their message for him not to be just wasting his time. Because if the Jerusalem church defaulted on the gospel and went the way of the Judaizers, then those Judaizers could just appeal to that church and overturn church after church that Paul plants. So he says, I went up and had a private meeting with them to make sure I'm not just wasting my time here. We need to be on the same page. Paul meets privately with them, sets his gospel before them in an attempt to come to unity with them if possible. And in fact, it is possible because they're true believers and they're able to work to unity. And in the Jerusalem council, they conclude really in favor of what Paul was presenting to them. I just want to remind you that this was not an easy thing. You read it in a few verses, but it's hard for us in our day and our time and location to grasp just how massive the cultural religious differences were between the Jewish people and the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. Even if you became a Christian as a Gentile, those cultural religious distinctions remained, and they were massive, and they were Powerful, and they were so dominant in one's thinking. So, for you to have someone like Paul, who is specifically called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, interacting and coming to unity with a Jerusalem church mainly focused on reaching the Jewish people is not a small thing. It's not leaning like this, it's leaning like this. (laughs) And that's why Paul is very careful and cautious in his interactions very thoughtful. Later when he goes, you'll remember toward the end of his ministry, later on when he goes to Jerusalem and some of the brothers in Jerusalem say, hey, since we're ministering to the Jews, they're really concerned that you're saying people have to be circumcised. They think you're just getting rid of everything distinctive of Judaism. You remember what Paul did? He kept a vow in the temple. Another time he has Timothy circumcised so he doesn't make anyone stumble. Paul was very thoughtful because he knew how massive the differences were between the Jews and the non-Jews. And he did everything in his power to minimize any possible conflict because of it, short of changing the gospel. This was a massive thing and required quite a bit of leaning together, hence the private meeting that takes place here. And just notice, too, that Paul, when he hears the Judaizers come from Jerusalem, I'm sure the Judaizers are saying, oh, the apostles approve of our message. But notice that Paul didn't just immediately believe the Judaizers, but instead went to Jerusalem to talk about it. Probably something to be learned there as well when there is something you hear that can lead to conflict among believers. Maybe go talk about it first to clear things up. So there you have how Paul deals with true believers, even if they differ and even if they're imperfect. Insofar as he's able, he leans toward them. He makes concessions. He does what he can, short of compromising the gospel. This brings us now to the final part of our passage because Paul is also dealing with those who are not true believers. False brothers. Look at this, verses 4 and 5. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Just as it was clear that the true brothers were true brothers, It's even more clear that the false brothers are false brothers because that's literally what he calls them in our text, right there, false brothers. Paul was well received by the true believers, even the leadership in Jerusalem. He was not received, however, nor was his gospel by a faction or a group in the church in Jerusalem, so-called Christians that we call Judaizers. They were very strict. They did not like what he was saying. They valued their Judaism. They were false brothers secretly brought in. So they were in the church, not outside the church. They were in the church, and they were false brothers. It's kind of like when it says secretly brought in. It's a little bit like our former senior pastor, Ernie, my mentor, used to say, when a false teacher comes in, they don't come in and say, hey, everybody, I'm a false teacher. (laughs) And that's true. Secretly brought in. There is a secrecy about error, about those who come in. They, he says, slipped in to spy out our freedom. They're spies. Peter agreed with Paul about this, and he wrote in one of his letters, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. That is one of the marks of false teachers, just so you know, is the secrecy. Because Paul said concerning himself as a true teacher of the gospel, this, we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. True teachers don't have disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we'd commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. True teachers, Don't live secret lives. At times they may through temptation of the devil, but God will pull them back. But false teachers, by definition, live in secrecy. False teachers love the shadows. The false brothers secretly brought in, slipped in. True teachers of the gospel will tell you the truth up here in a pulpit, and you go to their house and they'll tell you the truth. When they're by themselves with their family, they'll tell their children and their wife the truth. But false teachers like the shadows. So when a false teacher comes up here, they will look nice, they will say nice things that they know you'll receive well, they will smile, they'll be well put together, they will say all the words in the order that they know you will like the words to be in. But secretly, there are disgraceful underhanded ways. Within, it's a tomb that's whitewashed and within are dead men's bones. So you find among false teachers lots of what we might call political maneuvering. Because political maneuvering requires putting on a certain face, so you think of me a certain way while I'm really doing something else. And that's what was happening with the false brothers. They snuck in. They acted in sneaky ways. Paul had a secret meeting, a private meeting with the leadership, But it wasn't because he had some other message to give them. It was for their dignity. It was to help him be received. But false teachers love private secret meetings. They are spies. Now, we also know these false brothers are false by the goal of their spying in our text, quote, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. The freedom that you have as a Christian referred to here is the freedom not to have to be circumcised, not to have to keep the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament law, not to have to keep a lot of the external commands that you find in the Old Testament. You have a freedom since Christ fulfilled that law. You're not going to restaurants worried. You're worried about your allergies, but you're not there worried about violating kosher. You don't have to be because you have freedom so that through love you can serve others without worrying about all of these other external regulations. But the false teachers snuck in and said, we don't want Jesus to fulfill it and make it go away. The false teachers were committed to Judaism as a system more than they were committed to Judaism's fulfillment or Judaism's Messiah or Judaism's God. They said, if following the Messiah requires that we're to believe that He's inaugurated a new covenant and now we don't have to get people to keep these Old Testament laws, if following Him means that, we'd rather keep the laws and circumcision and the culture and just be done with the Messiah and change or throw away the gospel. They wanted to go around to the churches where Paul had come and proclaimed the gospel and shackles had fallen off. People are set free from sin and from bondage and are living in a joyous, love-filled freedom. And in came the Judaizers. And they pick up the shackles and sneakily click them back on their arms. Say, oh, no, 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 no. You've got a lot of work to do here. You've got all of these rules to keep. They wanted to shackle people again. So it's clear they are false brothers. We're not talking about people with secondary disagreements, Baptist Presbyterians type of thing. What we're talking about right here is those who have a works-based gospel. They're false brothers. So that leaves us with really our final question. How does Paul handle and how should we handle those who come into the church as false brothers with a false gospel? And if we were to summarize, Paul's approach it would be like this, close the gate, do not leave the gate open, shut it in their face. He says, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Paul did not mind having long deliberations and conversations. He was patient with the leadership who were true brothers. Met with them in private, even in the public meeting. They're working through things. They're quoting the Old Testament. They're saying, I think this is fulfilled here. It takes time, and Paul's willing to give true believers time if they have error or they're not seeing things clearly. But that's not what we're talking about with the Judaizers. The Judaizers said they could see. That's why they were blind. They came in with a confidence saying, well, we know the truth. You don't have to tell us, Paul. And you're wrong. People need to be circumcised. You can't be a Christian if you're not a Jew first. And to them, Paul said, I did not yield in any submission to them. He did not lean toward them. He did not sit at a round table with them for a nice discussion. He did not invite them into his home to really hear them out. He did none of those things. These were false teachers. And Paul said, not for a second did I yield at all. I didn't compromise. Peter, he compromised. We'll see that. But Paul says, I did not compromise. I took a firm stance. I closed the gate. And this applies for us too. When someone is teaching clear heresy, and let's preserve that term for when someone is compromising the gospel directly, someone comes in and denies the resurrection, Someone comes in and calls into question whether Christ really died for our sins on the cross or more as an example. If someone comes in denying the gospel, we close the gate. That means we use strong words, not just gentle, soft words. But we may use strong words. We may tell them, you're not welcome here. We will tell them, you're not welcome here. Paul said, even of a contentious person, after one or two warnings, show them the door. Now, that doesn't seem very nice, but it is biblical and it is necessary. We call out error. We warn each other. We expunge it. Again, we save this for true heresies, not because you don't agree with how somebody dressed, but you're saving this for true heresies that threaten the gospel We close the gate, and it won't seem nice, but there's nothing for it, because if you don't do that, our church dies. Error will overrun the church. If anyone comes to you with a gospel contrary to the one that you received, it's not just the leadership that has this responsibility, but trust me, we are looking out for the flock, but it's you as well. You have the responsibility. You remember John in one of his letters said, if someone comes to you with a false gospel and they're propagating it, don't even let them in your house. He goes so far as to say, don't even greet them. (laughs) What he's making clear is, you're not buddy-buddy with them. Love them, love their soul, share the gospel with them if you can, but do nothing at all to support or seem like you support them in their heretical error. It is matters of eternal life and death. Make it as clear as it can possibly be that you do not agree This doesn't mean we're going to march down to other churches out here that we disagree with even if they're heretical and start chanting and contradicting. We're talking especially about false teachers who come into our fellowship. We have a responsibility right here that that will be dealt with by a closing of the gate. Not because we are mean or fearful people. Let us be open and generous and loving every time it's possible. But I'm praying for the future of Faith Bible Church, not just for ourselves, but maybe for children and grandchildren in future generations. If they're to have the true gospel that can bring us to heaven, if they're to know Christ crucified for sins and to trust in Him alone for their salvation and to reach eternal happiness and to meet us in the skies, if that's going to happen, it will require a vigilance on our end toward false teaching. So that is my prayer, that the Lord would deliver us from every evil doctrine, would teach us when exactly when to close the gate, would guide us in those decisions, and would preserve for us, just as Paul wished to do, to preserve for us the gospel of truth, and would bring us safely to our heavenly home.